Well, we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 13, the section that we're at now, and looking at the section between verse 10 and verse 36, which is uh, the heading that's been given to this section is uh, realizing Satan's grip, or sorry, releasing Satan's grip, and realizing it as well, <laughs> and uh, <coughs> and looking forward to a better kingdom. There's four sections in this that uh, I want to look at. Um, one in the first section is really just looking at this um, Satan's grip, which is a spirit of infirmity. Um, the second section is looking at uh, a vision of God's kingdom, which is just a very short section. And then the third section I'd like us to look at is uh, all that follows on in this uh, chapter is asking the question really, who truly knows Christ? And then the last section in this portion is maybe headed up, don't fear, but have sorrow for the lost. So let's just uh, read it together first of all, and then we'll make some comments on it. So it's Luke chapter 13, reading from verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. <coughs> Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, but not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day? From what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So that's the first section. The second one is headed up in my Bible, Parables of the Mustard Seed and the Yeast, but I've put it down as a vision of God's kingdom. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the door. And then the third section, which is, uh, who truly knows Christ? Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, 
teaching as he went, and he made his way to Jerusalem, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you, or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you, or where you come from, away from me all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, who will be first, and the first, who will be last. And then the last section, which I've headed up, don't fear, but have sorrow for the lost. So verse 31, we, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Israel, Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So taking the first section is about the woman who has this infirmity and she'd had it for 18 years. And the first thing I think that's very noticeable is that she's in the synagogue. I think um, when we're looking at these um, incidences in the scriptures, that are there, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are there for a purpose. And we know, for instance, that the scriptures tell us that if, if all the things that the Lord Jesus Christ did when he was here on earth, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So there's only been a select few that have been chosen. And they have been chosen for a purpose. They have been compiled by men, men and women, to put together and to form the scriptures as we know it. But all we believe under the power of God. 
And so here when we read about this story, we naturally should be considering it and thinking, why is it there? What's the purpose of this being revealed to us? And what is God teaching us in it? I think it's maybe worth just mentioning right at the very beginning that we believe this is the inspired word of God. So when we read it, we are listening to what God says and God is speaking. And it's incumbent on us to respond. That not just to look on them as nice words or a nice story uh, as we maybe did in Sunday school or maybe when we were less spiritually active, that uh, we, we look on things and just think a little bit like Aesop's fables, there's a little story in it and it's nice and uh, move on. This is God speaking. And if God is speaking, he's speaking for a purpose and therefore we have to take on board what he's teaching. This woman on the Sabbath is in the synagogue. That tells you a little bit about the woman, that despite her infirmity, she is still wanting to be mixing with people who are there to worship God. She wants to be before God. She wants to listen to what God has to say. And so therefore she makes sure she is in the place that she believes uh, God will speak to her. And despite her difficulty, now this is one thing about this, this woman had an infirmity which is, has caused her to be bent double and she'd had it for 18 years. And we don't get any more information about this woman, how old she was or whatever, but she had this infirmity. Every one of us has an infirmity. I was just talking to Steve yesterday on the, on the way to our meeting in, in, in Wigan. It was uh, really, when we think about the evil spirits that the Lord Jesus Christ came upon, and they, they were people that had difficulties, some of them mental difficulties, some of them physical difficulties, and you wonder, why? <laughs> why is it that these people had these difficulties and it almost as if they were there for the purpose of showing forth the glory of God and and you can go back to oh, back you can think about the uh, Paul's difficulty he had a what known as a thorn in the flesh the great man Paul who was one of the mightiest preachers and totally committed from his conversion to his death almost of uh, serving the Lord and preaching had an infirmity we don't we, and we were purposely not told what it was <laughs> uh, because it can encompass anything and that's why I think we were not told is because we can come back to this and think well we've all got problems some that people will maybe easily deal with more so than others and others that are like Paul's a thorn in the flesh and of course if you think about that a thorn in the flesh it's constantly there it's niggling you all the time you wake up with it you go to bed with it and it's it's come something you're just thinking why have I got this if this could only be taken away my life would be so much better but what the Lord said to Paul was, my grace 
is sufficient for you. So what the purpose was for Paul to have this infirmity because it was going to benefit him. <laughs> and whilst in a natural sense you think, well, <clears throat> surely not. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I believe it must have focused Paul's mind on the grace of God. Focused Paul's mind on concentrating on the things that God wanted him to concentrate on and not relieve him of that pain or that suffering uh, because he needed he needed to know the grace of God in his life and that was a help and <laughs> whilst it's maybe uh, easy for me to stand here and say things like that because I have no idea what the thorn in the flesh was but if it, how painful it might have been or how difficult it might have been for Paul I do know that if the Lord responded to him and said, my grace is sufficient, then his grace was sufficient. And he benefited from it. So, when we get these situations that we have here, we are not able to discern whether it's spirits of infirmity. But we are able to discern that God allows these things for a purpose. Sometimes he removes them. Other times he doesn't. And all we should respond really is, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because the whole purpose of it's got to be our growth in understanding who God is. He is almighty. And therefore his judgments are correct. They are right. They are righteous. And we need to be able to submit. So this woman, she was allowed to have this infirmity for 18 years. She suffered for 18 years. She meets the Lord and the Lord removes the infirmity. And she is being used by God in order to show the power of God through the, the coming to Jesus. And through it all, that woman is used. She's had to suffer. And here she gets this um, opportunity, if you like, to be an object lesson. That the Lord, call, the Lord Jesus calls her. She comes to him and he removes the infirmity. He removes this evil spirit that's causing the infirmity. And she immediately rejoices. She immediately praises God. She immediately stands up straight. And she is a, a evidence of the, the power, the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The teaching in that, of course, is that we need to come to Jesus. We need to know him. We need to appreciate the fact that he can do all things. Whether he will or not is entirely up to him. And his purposes are right. So maybe it's a bit of encouragement for those of us who are struggling, maybe more so than others, is that the Lord knows. And the Lord is allowing it. But there's a purpose in it. And our job is to submit to that, to learn from that, 
and to grow because of that. Out of this story there comes also the hypocrisy of the rulers. The head of the synagogue becomes indignant because it's done on the Sabbath. And so he's trying to pick holes on it. He's trying to demean the work of the Lord Jesus Christ by criticising him for doing it uh, on the Sabbath, which he decreed, along with his cronies, that this ought to be a time when you do next to nothing. It was never the intention of God when he uh, gave the instructions to the people of Israel that it was a day of rest, that you didn't obviously do the necessary, like feed yourself or look after your animals and uh, make sure um, the necessary things were done. And the Lord pointed that out when he responded. How ridiculous. I always remember when I was, when I was very young, I mean, uh, Lord's Day, which of course is the first day of the week, um, seemed to get treated, particularly in my younger days, more like the Sabbath, <laughs> um, where I wasn't allowed to play with my friends on the Lord's Day and because it was a day that should have been set aside for the Lord. And I'm not demeaning that in any way, but it's, it was something that is not scriptural in as much that, and I'll just throw this in, the Sabbath, of course, was the seventh day of the week, which is our Saturday. And that was the day when uh, the Lord instructed us Remember, he instructed his creation and, and then further instructed, instructed his people, the people of Israel, that that day should be holy, that day should be set apart, and that day you should not work. When we come to uh, the New Testament, uh, the early Christians still kept the Sabbath. And... Uh, I don't know whether I've said this before, but in some ways, I think it was a lovely picture because we know that the early Christians gathered on the first day of the week to remember the Lord Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And if they had kept the Sabbath, which would have been the Saturday, and they didn't work, a whole day of preparation, a whole day of um, being able to rest to enjoy God, to enjoy his creation, and to be preparing for the remembrance. <laughs> you think, I wonder, are we missing something? I just think, throw that in. The Lord's Day, and the only reference we get about the Lord's Day, of course, is when, uh, when John was in the Isle of Patmos, he was in the Spirit uh, on the Lord's Day. So I think it's quite right that we should refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day, because that was when they gathered to remember the Lord Jesus. So it was a special day, and it's quite right that we do that. But maybe the Sabbath is something that we've never, it's never been rescinded. And just because um, it was the Jews that kept it, um, I wonder, it wasn't just given to the Jews. And we never read that the Sabbath 
um, was no longer applicable. So anyway, take that on away and say, say, chew it. <laughs> the Lord, when he um, explained to them about being sensible about the Sabbath, um, the response and the outcome of that was, of course, that his opponents, and that, that's what they were. They were just trying to find holes in what he was saying. They were humiliated because they were showing up for what they were, hypocrites. But the people, uh, they rejoiced because they were seeing wonderful things. They were the people who were following him and they were seeing time and time again the mighty hand of God doing wonderful things. That is the same for us today. Is That is how we should be living our lives. And as we are reading and communing with the Lord, is more and more knowing the wonderful things of God we should be experiencing in our daily lives. Even though the Lord Jesus is not here in body, but we are in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the capability given to us to read the scriptures and to have them revealed to us. And through that, we can enjoy the wonderful things of God. Because when we read the Bible, we see things that people who do not have the Holy Spirit within them cannot see because they are blinded. So, make use of it. Go on to the second um, section. And uh, by that, I better hurry up. Um, <clears throat> this was the, the parables of the mustard seed in the east, which um, I've headed as a vision of God's kingdom. Um, this is a, where the Lord Jesus asked the question about what is the kingdom of God? <laughs> You know, that's a question that's been asked ever since. <laughs> still, we're all still struggling with that in many ways. What is the kingdom of God? And you get a very simplistic answer, so I'm just going to keep it there. It's a short section. And what is the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom, as we know, is a place where a king rules. And he has subject people under him. So... This is where the Lord is reflecting on the fact that what is being formed here uh, under his rule, under his, uh, the authority given to him by his father, is a kingdom is being formed. And he's liking it to a little seed. A mustard seed, as you've heard the story, mate, is one of the smallest seeds that you can get. Or it's also likened to yeast a tiny little bit of yeast being put into dough and it, the effect that comes from it is that if it's the seed is sown the tiny tiny seed becomes a great tree and it can be used and mentioned for birds to nest on and to rest on and for a tree is a thing that can be used for many, many things. Powerful, strong. And the yeast 
look at the effect of it being put into a lot of flour and mixed. It permeates <coughs> right through it all. And so he's, he's, he's expressing that the kingdom of God, the submission of pe people's submission to his rule, to his authority, who accept him as being their king and their ruler, it's a tiny thing to start with, but it will grow. And he is promising here, not just on this earth, but in the future, it's going to be a mighty thing. The kingdom of God on earth is hard to see. It's a small thing. And when we talk to other Christians about where is God's kingdom today, you'll get many answers and lots of confusion and doubt and difficulties over it all. But the one thing you can home in on is its total subjection to God. It's accepting his word for what it is and taking it on board and believing it and being part of it. And that means that it grows. Your spirituality grows. That person grows and you join together with people who are of like mind and you grow together. And we believe in Churches of God that that is something that uh, is <clears throat> important to take hold of. I don't want to be critical of other Christians. It's not my place to do that other than to say there, in the church, the body, you meet many, many Christians, many, many people. Of course, the church, the body comprises of dead people. I'm talking about the living ones alive just now. And they, they vary in their beliefs and their acceptance and their understanding of God. And it's not my place or your place to be judging them. And God will judge. We focus on ourselves and the importance of seeing that what God has given us He's put us, he's planted us, he's placed us, and therefore we should grow because we're part of something that's beautiful and big and will be much bigger than it is today. Then just going on to verse 22. This is a question really about who he was asked as a, Lord, are there only a few people going to be saved? I think we have to look at this in maybe two parts. One is the, the, the Jew, the Israelite, who, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, they were the people of God. They were the separated people. They're the ones that we were, were freed from their bondage in Egypt, were taken into the promised land, and they've, they've been there and they've been kicked out and they've been back again. And when the Lord came, they were there, but they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. But they believed and they were the people of God. So when the question is asked about salvation, I think they, if it's coming from the mouth of a, a Jew at this time, they were, I think, looking at their situation. Um, what about us Jews? Are we going to be saved? Because it's written in the scriptures about this, 
about the Lord, about the people of Israel being the people of God and his dealings with them. So we can look at this and think, well, actually what the Lord is saying is that there's very few of them going to be saved. They've rejected Christ. And if we look at the Jew, they're in a precarious position. There's a people who were chosen because of the faith of Abraham down the line of Isaac and Jacob and their separation and their initial acceptance that we all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. They've gone away from God and they, as a people, rejected Christ. As a people, they crucified him. And as a people, even today, do not recognise that the Messiah has already come. They're still waiting on him. So the vast majority of them are Christ rejectors. So when asked the question, then they are told the door is narrow and there's very few <coughs> that can enter. And there's going to come a time when they're going to want to enter, when it becomes very apparent, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and he appears to the people, the Jewish people and they recognise him as the one that they pierced as a people. And then they'll roll. And it'll be too late then. And they will say, oh, we remember you. You were, you're one of us. <laughs> you are, uh, you preached amongst us. You were in our streets. And he'll say, I don't know you. It's a scary thing. But then he goes on to say there are people who are going to come to this great feast at the end and they're going to come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And that's the Gentiles. And they're going to come. And that's the opportunity, of course, of the body of Christ that have had, who have accepted Christ as our saviour. And we are going to be part of the great future in heaven with the Lord. So, it's a sobering thing in many ways, but um, it's almost as if he's given the, the Jews first choice. He's given the Jews first opportunity and they, as a, in the majority, they've re rejected it. Thankfully, there are, there are some Christian Jews around who won't who will make it. But that's why the door is narrow for them. And then lastly, um, the sorrow for Jerusalem is really um, is looking at, at um, confidence of the Lord and having a sorrow for the lost. When, when they approached the Lord Jesus Christ and they said to him, um, Herod is trying to kill you. You better get out, run away, 
it was almost a sense in which they, they obviously did not <coughs> understand him or appreciate who he was. And they wanted an excuse to get rid of him, and, and they probably thought this was a good one. <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing you a good deed here, we're letting you know Herod actually is looking to kill you. What the Lord came back with very forcibly, and, and, it, and it, it's something that should rejoice our hearts a bit, is that that fox really can't touch me. <laughs> And again, it's a confidence that we have, in, we have in Christ is seen in the confidence that Christ had that certain things were going to happen. He was going to be, he'd been given the job of teaching and preaching and healing people. But he was going to Jerusalem where he was going to be judged by men. And that's where he was going to fulfill his goal. And that fox, Herod, hasn't got any say in it. That's what's going to happen. And the, the purposes of God are always going to happen. And nobody is going to thwart that. Be they Pharaoh, be they Mrs May, or Donald Trump, or whoever uh, has got power and tries to thwart the purposes of God will fail. And that has been seen in Scripture time and time again. We have the confidence that the prophecy will, will be fulfilled. What already has happened is evidence. What is still to happen, have confidence, will be fulfilled. And the Lord was saying that, I'm going, effectively, I'm going to fulfill my goal, which means I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be judged and I'm going to die there. And then I'm going to rise again. We know all. That's going to happen. And Herod is not going to take me and kill me. And stop that happening. So the confidence is there on the purposes of God. But then he immediately switches. As he lo looks on Jerusalem. And he weeps over Jerusalem. And that, you know, that picture that's often mentioned in prayer, that I'm sure you've thought about many times, is the picture of the Lord Jesus being like a hen and with its wings out. And if you've ever watched a hen with its chicks, you know, you can see these chicks all running around all over the place. And then the hen's wings go out and the chicks seem to disappear. <laughs> they all just go under the wings and the wings fold over. And these little chicks are all snuggled up in the feathers of the hen, comfortable and protected. And from the outside, you can't even see them. That's what the Lord wanted for Jerusalem. And the picture of Jerusalem, of course, is the place where God had come and put his name. He wanted to be there and to be worshipped by his people. Uh, Jerusalem was the, the imagery of the place of the people of God meeting with God. And the answer came back from the Israelites. You would not. We don't want you. And the picture of the chicks refusing to come under the wings. 
and you get the sorrow and the thought of the sorrow of the rejection of how the Lord Jesus Christ felt being rejected. What is a teaching in that for us is the same today for us as he longs for us to be under his wings of protection. Don't be like the Israelites and don't do it. Enjoy the embrace, the comfort, the protection of Christ. And you say it's not an automatic thing. Although we have accepted Christ as our saviour and we are entitled, we are part of it, we can live lives that are separate from him. We can be filled with other things that we are not acting and appreciating the joys of being in Christ. That is so evident in lots of people and even in those who enjoy it, sometimes it's only for a time. We're in and out of the protection and the love of God and love of Christ. So that picture there, listen to the lament because it's, a, it's what the Lord wants. It's a place where the Lord wants us to be enjoying that comfort and to know that the will not be desolate anymore. The Lord said, you know, to the Jews, he said, you, your house I leave unto you desolate. It's, a, it's a, such a, a sad thing. Well, this will just close. It's just the, the, the picture that he's saying it's not God's house anymore. This temple, Herod's temple that was there at the time of Christ, um, he was saying to them, my father is not there anymore. It's no longer God's house. It's your house. And a few years later, that was going to be confirmed. In fact, it was confirmed on the cross. Because you remember that when the Lord cried out and gave up his spirit, that the veil of the temple was torn in two. And that was two things, <laughs> in my mind anyway. One, it showed that they had, the priests who were operating there could look through the veil and they didn't die. <laughs> that meant God wasn't there. The glory had departed. It's also the imagery, of course, that the veil is torn and that we now have access in Christ Jesus to come into the presence of God like we do as a, in a priesthood service. So there's two sides to it. One, he left the physical house. He was no longer in a house made by hands. It was going to be a spiritual house. And that the torn veil, the torn flesh of Christ, the spear-wounded side of Christ, was our access to God. And we only have access through Christ. But here, your house... I leave unto you desolate. God does not dwell in physical buildings anymore. So, I leave these thoughts with you. I trust they've been helpful. Shall we pray?